Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from The Gazillionaire and the Virgin, written by Elizabeth Sarai. A brilliant and quirky Silicon Valley romance. When Silicon Valley entrepreneur Rachel Zielinski meets reclusive genius Theo Moore, she finds him strangely compelling. Theo is both arrogant and socially awkward, but he has an aura of power that speaks to Rachel's carefully hidden submissive side. Disturbed and aroused, she tries to focus on her original objective, a deal to incorporate his artificial intelligence software into her company's popular virtual world. Rachel's not a woman who lets pleasure interfere with business, but for some reason she can't resist Theo's geeky appeal. Theo Moore can't be bought. His past battles with poverty make him deeply suspicious of the billionaire's CEO. Still, with her voluptuous curves and brilliant mind, Rachel embodies his ultimate sexual fantasy. Too bad his knowledge about sex derives from extensive research and a stash of kinky porn, rather than real-world experience. That doesn't bother Rachel, however. In his bed, in his arms, in his bonds, she discovers the bliss of total surrender. Rachel may be Theo's first lover, but Theo is Rachel's first true master and the first man to truly touch her heart. It seems that love may harmonize their differing goals and values until Rachel's unwitting violation of Theo's trust threatens to tear them apart forever. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from The Gazillionaire and the Virgin. Chapter 1 I'm used to getting what I want. It's not because I'm smarter than most people, or richer. These are documented facts, by the way, not boasts. No, I usually succeed because I don't give up. I'm tenacious, or just plain stubborn, if you listen to my mother. If I can't solve a problem via one approach, I'll try another until it finally yields to my attack. I can be patient, if I need to be, and I'm willing to work hard. I just won't admit defeat. I've always been this way, though I'm sure my education strengthened the personality trait. One woman in a class of 30-plus men, most of whom believed that the female of the species was incapable of logical thought, if I'd allowed myself the luxury of surrender, I'd never have survived. Hence, I'm not giving up on Theo Moore, no matter how many times he refuses my overtures. I want him, his technology, and his brilliant mind. I won't take no for an answer. And I believe I finally found a wedge I can apply, or a chink in his armor. Some might call it bribery. In my view, it's just business. Diane sticks her head in my office door. He's here, Rachel. Thanks. Show him in, please. I barely have time to run my fingers through my frizzy curls before Professor Theo Moore shuffles into the room and slumps down onto the couch opposite my desk. I hadn't expected him to be so big. He's well over six feet tall, I'd guess, with the shoulders of a football player. 
A rumpled white shirt and loose trousers hide the details of his body, but I don't think he's fat, just large. His smooth young face seems incongruous paired with his giant's frame. Shaggy black hair overhangs his forehead and grazes his collar. Behind dark-framed, unfashionable glasses, his eyes dart from one detail of my luxurious office to the next, finally settling on the rust-hued trunks of the redwoods outside my window. He sucks in a deep breath, then releases it in a long sigh. He doesn't look at me. Good afternoon, Dr. Moore. I rise, circle the desk, and settle into a chair next to the couch. Thanks for agreeing to see me. He ignores my outstretched hand, continuing to stare out at the lovely view. His fists are clenched on either side of his thighs. Rarely have I seen anyone look so ill at ease. How far away is the sea? He asks, finally. About fifty meters. Most of the time you can't quite see the water, but at sunset you can sometimes catch the glint of the reflections. You should have built closer, he declares. The stark confidence in his voice is at odds with the nervousness I read in his body language. I would have designed this place so that every office had a view of the ocean. That would have been my preference, too, but California building codes are pretty strict. With your money, I would think you would have arranged for a variance. I decide to ignore the jibe. He doesn't seem to realize he's insulted me. I appreciate your taking the time out of your busy schedule, Doctor. I know Looking Glass Inc. is a bit off the beaten track. Did you have a comfortable trip? I've gotten plenty of flack for establishing my company's campus in Santa Cruz, rather than in the heart of Silicon Valley, but I don't care. This is where I want to be. Oh, yes indeed. That was one of the most comfortable limousine rides I've ever experienced. Sarcasm drips in his reply. With a ride that smooth, I was almost convinced that your company's latest technology coup was an anti-gravity device. Not yet. My laugh sounds forced. His social awkwardness is affecting me. That's on our agenda for next year. Would you like some coffee, by the way? Juice? Water? Nothing. He yanks his eyes away from the view and stares over my head, focusing on the Klee original hanging behind my desk. I drank my fill from the complimentary bar in your limo. I find myself in the unaccustomed state of being temporarily at a loss for words. Despite his lack of social skills, Moore somehow has gained the upper hand in this conversation. I swallow my annoyance and begin again. About your charity. I don't approve of you, Ms. Zielinski. Finally, he looks at me, though he seems fixated on my mouth rather than my eyes. You and your kind. It's Dr. Zielinski, actually. Guess he hadn't bothered to Google me. And what do you mean, my kind? You valley billionaires who think your money can buy anything, including the human soul. You use technology to enslave the poor benighted masses. You lure them into spending their time and money on devices and services they don't need. 
You suction up their personal data so you can slice it, dice it, and use it to sell them more trash. And then you brag about how you're ushering in a brave new world of high-tech miracles. <sighs> Suddenly, he's on his feet, towering over my chair, his full lips twisted into a black scowl. For an instant, I think he's going to hit me. Instead, he turns his back on me to stride over to the window. Sunlight filters through the boughs to dapple the earth below. The view appears to calm him somewhat. His fingers uncurl, but his shoulders are still hunched and tight. Enslave the benighted masses? Don't you think that's a bit melodramatic? I'm tempted to cross the room and stand by his side, to soothe and coddle him. I refrain. He's too skittish. Melodramatic? He glances over his shoulder at me. I know one kid from south-central L.A., a former member of Code in the Hood. He beat his mother senseless when she wouldn't give him money to buy the latest iPhone. Another guy died of a stroke after spending three days and nights nonstop playing Grand Theft Auto. Then there was young Aurelia. Her brother came to a couple CIH meetings. She killed herself after her boyfriend posted naked pictures of her on Facebook. There are always unstable individuals in the population, I begin. You can't hold technology responsible. I stop short. Why in the hell should I defend myself? In any case, Code in the Hood exists at least partly to counter those tendencies, doesn't it? To inspire disadvantaged kids to engage with technology in a productive way and to give them the computational skills they need to succeed. You've been studying our PR materials, I gather. He wanders over to the clee and peers at it like some art critic. This is real, isn't it? Of course it's real, I snap. I take a deep breath, summoning every shred of patience I can muster. And yes, naturally I've been researching your organization, given that Looking Glass is considering a substantial contribution. Considering? Your email led me to believe that you definitely decided to support CIH. That's the only reason I agreed to meet you. We have decided. In fact, I've already prepared a check. I invited you to Santa Cruz because I wanted to give it to you in person. With slow, deliberate steps, I make my way back to my desk and open the top drawer. I half expect more to flee as I get closer, but he stands his ground, watching my every move with an intensity that's unnerving. Here you are, Dr. Moore, to assist in your worthwhile efforts. He scans the slip of paper I place in his hand. $250,000? That's... that's quite generous. Enough to fund our drop-in tech center in L.A. for a year. He raises his head. Our eyes really connect for the first time since he arrived. Some unidentifiable emotion jolts me. Behind the Clark Kent glasses, his eyes are a deep, rich brown, brimming with intelligence. They drill into me like lasers, burning through the layers of polite etiquette and business strategy, seeking to unmask the truth about me and my motives. So tell me, Dr. Zelinsky, 
he says at last. What do you expect in return for this contribution? I meet his gaze, accepting his challenge. Nothing at all. The money's yours. That is, it belongs to CIH. Free and clear. He skims the check one more time. No strings? None. In fact, I'm prepared to help you raise more funds for your excellent cause. I expect that, with a little prodding, I could get Sergey and Larry to shell out at least as much. Maybe Mark could be convinced, too. Theo Moore folds the check and carefully deposits it in his shirt pocket. Then he plops his bulk into my ergonomic desk chair, swivels to face the wall, and resumes his inspection of my painting. Based on your earlier communications, he comments, I had some notion that you were interested in shaman. God, he's annoying. I grab the chair arm and swing him around to face me once more. It's rude to turn your back in the middle of a conversation. He shrugs and half grins. I've been called worse than rude. Sorry. I'm not very good at dealing with people. So, was I mistaken about your intentions? You're just interested in CIH, not in my software. He's doing it again, taking control of the interaction. He's even stolen my chair. I hike myself up onto the polished teak desk so I can look him straight in the eyes. I didn't say that. Uh-huh. So this check is a bribe. He crosses his arms across his broad chest. Just as I suspected. Not at all. You can get up right now, take the check, and walk away. The limo's waiting downstairs to drive you back to Palo Alto. However, I don't deny that I'd like to at least talk to you about joining forces with Looking Glass. Your storytelling AI would be a hugely popular addition to Mirror World. I believe I've already made it clear how I feel about computer games. Mirror World isn't a game. It's a virtual universe, the first quantum online universe ever created. The random aspect of our world is what makes it so satisfying. You mean addictive. Theo picks up my sleek, brushed stainless steel stapler and examines it thoroughly. I press on, though I'm losing hope that I'll ever get through to him. Mirror World is more than just entertainment, Theo. It's an entire universe where people can express their imagination without the physical and economic limitations they face in daily life. You should see the amazing art created by Mirror World residents, the magnificent buildings and soaring bridges they construct, symphonies, poetry. A thousand cultures have bloomed since we went online two years ago. From what I've read... The place is big on prostitution and kinky sex. A blush climbs into my cheeks. I ignore the heat. Instead, I reach for the stapler, extricate it from Theo's grasp as though retrieving a dangerous item from a child, and set it back on the desk. He doesn't resist me. I note in passing that his grip is strong and his skin is warmer than mine. Of course there's some of that, there always is. But most of what goes on in Mirror World is positive, 
creative, healthy, fulfilling. Sex isn't healthy and fulfilling. He flips his black locks out of his eyes and flashes another grin. Now he's deliberately baiting me. I can see that he's more relaxed than at first, that he's starting to get used to my presence. Come on, Theo, you know what I mean. Anyway, we think that shaman could add depth and meaning to the immersive experience we already provide. How? I catch a new sense of engagement in his tone. Maybe he's listening after all. There are many possibilities. For instance, your system could generate plot lines for quests and cooperative missions, which some residents enjoy. Most games and online environments are far too predictable. People get bored. Your AI could provide an almost inexhaustible source of unexpected events. He leans in my direction, big hands resting on his thighs, thinking seriously about my proposal. Shaman doesn't create stories out of thin air. It needs to be given seed concepts. Oh, I understand that. According to your published research, though, the system can produce a wide variety of different stories from the same seeds. You've read my papers? His eyebrows arch in surprise, while his lips curve into a smile that, for once, is neither sarcastic nor apologetic. How else would I know about your work? Anyway, the other idea we had, I had, actually, was to use the software to create virtual bards and elders. Many mirror world cultures are traditional rather than advanced societies. People sit around their campfires as they did thousands of years ago, telling tales. Imagine if those tales were new and surprising each time. I've finally gotten through. There's a spark in his eyes that was missing before. That might be interesting. Even more intriguing, maybe we could get the humans and the AI to collaborate on the stories. That's a fabulous notion, Theo. I've caught his enthusiasm. Without really thinking about it, I reach for him, place a casual hand on his arm. He jerks away. Don't, please, Dr. Zelinsky. Despite his protest, there's a pleading quality to his voice, a yearning in his eyes, as if he actually craved more physical contact from me rather than less. I don't fully trust that intuition, though. I increase the distance between us and watch the tension in his body abate slightly. Rachel. You should call me Rachel if we're going to be working together. I didn't say I'd work with you. He stands abruptly. I slide off the desk to face him. I have to crane my neck to read his expression. But you'll think about it. We're closer than we've been during the entire meeting. I'm acutely aware of his body, solid, bulky, radiating heat. He's trembling slightly. I want to press my palms against his chest, to calm the too fast beating of his heart. I resist the urge. He twists away, dodges around me, and bolts for the door, but pauses before he exits. I'm sorry, Rachel. He sounds as though he's run a marathon. I have to leave. You'll think about what I've said, though. Yes, yes. 
I'll email you. He pats his pocket. Thank you for the donation. I really do appreciate it. This will make a big difference for my kids. I'm glad, but I think I can do more. Maybe I'll organize a fundraiser. There's a lot of money floating around the valley. As you know... He's gone, though, before my sentence is finished. Fleeing as if pursued by fiends from hell. I sink into my chair, still warm from his body, and rest my chin on my clasped hands. What a strange man. Still, it looks as though I'll get what I want, eventually, as I usually do. I feel unsettled, scattered. I glance at my watch. 4.30. Perhaps I'll change and go for a run along the beach. When I stand and stretch, I realize my nipples are hard under my blouse, and my panties are damp. Because of Theo? I chuckle at the memory of his anxiety and awkwardness. If I can find anything attractive in such a rumpled, prickly creature, it really has been much too long since I've been laid. Have to do something about that. Maybe it's time for a visit to the Ninth Circle. The notion of playing with strangers, however, has little appeal. Still restless, I sit down once more and trace the unlock pattern on my phone, then scroll through my contacts for the event organizers I used last Christmas. Might as well be productive. I'm determined to raise so much money for Moore's charity that he'll feel indebted to me, despite his disapproval, and will cooperate with my plans. As the phone rings, I realize that I seriously, and quite irrationally, want Theo Moore to approve of me. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from The Gazillionaire and the Virgin. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.